Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Life of Cicero, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume 1, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 1, Introduction, Part 2. It occurs to us as we read the history of Rome beginning with the early consuls, and going to the death of Caesar and of Cicero, and the accomplished despotism of Augustus, that the Republic could not have been saved by any efforts, and was in truth not worth the saving. We are apt to think, judging from our own idea of liberty, that there was so much of tyranny, so little of real freedom in the Roman form of government, that it was not good enough to deserve our sympathies. But it had been successful. It had made a great people, and had produced a widespread civilization. Roman citizenship was to those outside the one thing the most worthy to be obtained. That career which led the great Romans up from the state of Quaestor to the Aediles, Praetors, and Consuls' chair, and thence to the rich reward of provincial government, was held to be the highest then open to the ambition of man. The kings of Greece and of the East and of Africa were supposed to be inferior in their very rank to a Roman proconsul, and this greatness was carried on with a semblance of liberty, and was compatible with a belief in the majesty of the Roman citizen. When Cicero began his work, consuls, praetors, aediles, and quaestors were still chosen by the votes of the citizens. There was bribery, no doubt, and intimidation, and a resort to those dirty arts of canvassing with which we English have been so familiar, but in Cicero's time the male free inhabitants of Rome did generally carry the candidates to whom they attached themselves. The salt of their republican theory was not as yet altogether washed out from their practice. The love of absolute liberty, as it has been cultivated among modern races, did not exist in the time of Cicero. The idea never seems to have reached even his bosom, human and humanitarian as were his sympathies, that a man, as man, should be free. Half the inhabitants of Rome were slaves, and the institution was so grafted in the life of the time that it never occurred to a Roman that slaves as a body should be manumitted. The slaves themselves, though they were not, as have been the slaves whom we have seen, of a different colour and presumed inferior race, do not themselves seem to have entertained any such idea. They were instigated now and again to servile wars, but there was no rising in quest of freedom generally. Nor was it repugnant to the Roman theory of liberty that the people whom they dominated, though not subjected to slavery, should still be outside the pale of civil freedom. That boon was to be reserved for the Roman citizen, and for him only. It had become common to admit to citizenship the inhabitants of other towns and further territories. The glory was not kept altogether for Rome, but for Romans. Thus, though the government was oligarchical, and the very essence of freedom ignored, there was a something which stood in the name of liberty, and could endear itself to a real patriot. With genuine patriotism Cicero loved his country, and beginning his public life as he did at the close of Sulla's tyranny, he was able to entertain a dream that the old state of things might be restored, and the republican form of government maintained. There should still be two consuls in Rome, whose annual election would guard the state against regal dominion, and there should at the same time be such a continuance of power in the hands of the better class, the optimates as he called them, as would preserve the city from democracy and revolution. No man ever trusted more entirely to popular opinion than Cicero, 
or was more anxious for aristocratic authority. But neither in one direction nor the other did he look for personal aggrandizement, beyond that which might come to him in accordance with the law and in subjection to the old form of government. It is because he was in truth patriotic, because his dreams of a republic were noble dreams, because he was intent on doing good in public affairs, because he was anxious for the honour of Rome and of Romans, not because he was or was not a real power in the state, that his memory is still worth recording. Added to this was the intellect and the wit and erudition of the man, which were at any rate supreme. And then, though we can now see that his efforts were doomed to failure by the nature of the circumstances surrounding him, he was so nearly successful, so often on the verge of success, that we are exalted by the romance of his story into the region of personal sympathy. As we are moved by the aspirations and sufferings of a hero in a tragedy, so are we stirred by the efforts, the fortune, and at last the fall of this man. There is a picturesqueness about the life of Cicero, which is wanting in the stories of Marius or Sulla, of Pompey or even of Caesar, a picturesqueness which is produced in great part by these very doubtings which have been counted against him as insincerity. His hands were clean when the hands of all around him were defiled by greed. How infinitely Cicero must have risen above his time when he could have clean hands! A man in our days will keep himself clean from leprosy, because to be a leper is to be despised by those around him. Advancing wisdom has taught us that such leprosy is bad, and public opinion coerces us. There is something, too, we must suppose, in the lessons of Christianity. Or it may be that the man of our day, with all these advantages, does not keep himself clean, that so many go astray that public opinion shall almost seem to tremble in the balance. Even with us, this and that abomination becomes allowable because so many do it. With the Romans, in the time of Cicero, greed, feeding itself on usury, rapine, and dishonesty, was so fully the recognised condition of life that its indulgence entailed no disgrace. But Cicero, with eyes within him which saw farther than the eyes of other men, perceived the baseness of the stain. It has been said also of him that he was not altogether free from reproach. It has been suggested that he accepted payment for his services as an advocate, any such payment being illegal. The accusation is founded on the knowledge that other advocates allowed themselves to be paid, and on the belief that Cicero could not have lived as he did without an income from that source. And then there is a story told of him that, though he did much at a certain period of his life to repress the usury, and to excite at the same time the enmity of a powerful friend, he might have done more. As we go on, the stories of these things will be told, but the very nature of the allegations against him prove how high he soared in honesty above the manners of his day. In discussing the character of the men, little is thought of the robberies of Sulla, the borrowings of Caesar, the money-lending of Brutus, or the accumulated wealth of Crassus. To plunder a province, to drive usury to the verge of personal slavery, to accept bribes for perjured judgment, to take illegal fees for services supposed to be gratuitous, was so much the custom of the noble Romans that we hardly hate this dishonest greed when displayed in its ordinary course. But because Cicero's honesty was abnormal, we are first surprised, and then, suspecting little deviations, rise up in wrath against him, because, in the midst of Roman profligacy, he was not altogether a Puritan in his money matters. 
Cicero is known to us in three great capacities, as a statesman, an advocate, and a man of letters. As the combination of such pursuits is common in our own days, so also was it in his. Caesar added to them all the great work of his life as a soldier. But it was given to Cicero to take a part in all those political struggles, from the resignation of Scylla to the first rising of the young Octavius, which were made on behalf of the Republic, and were ended by its downfall. His political life contains the story of the conversion of Rome from Republican to Imperial rule, and Rome was then the world. Could there have been no Augustus, no Nero, and then no Trajan, all Europe would have been different. Cicero's efforts were put forth to prevent the coming of an Augustus or a Nero, or the need of a Trajan. And as we read of them, we feel that had success been possible, he would have succeeded. As an advocate, he was unsurpassed. From him came the feeling, whether it be right or wrong, that a lawyer, in pleading for his client, should give to that client's cause not only all his learning and all his wit, but also all his sympathy. To me it is marvellous and interesting, rather than beautiful, to see how completely Cicero can put off his own identity and assume another's in any cause, whatever it be, of which he has taken the charge. It must, however, be borne in mind that in old Rome the distinction between speeches made in political and in civil or criminal cases was not equally well marked as with us, and also that the reader having the speeches which have come down to us, whether of one nature or the other, presented to him in the same volume, is apt to confuse the public and that which may perhaps be called the private work of the man. In the speeches best known to us, Cicero was working as a public man for public objects, and the ardour, I may say the fury, of his energy in the cause which he was advocating was due to his public aspirations. The orations which have come to us in three sets, some of them published only but never spoken, those against Verres, against Catiline, and the Philippics against Antony, were all of this nature, though the first concerned the conduct of a criminal charge against one individual. Of these I will speak in their turn, but I mention them here in order that I may, if possible, induce the reader to begin his inquiry into Cicero's character as an advocate with a just conception of the objects of the man. He wished, no doubt, to shine, as does the barrister of today. He wished to rise. He wished, if you will, to make his fortune, not by the taking of fees, but by extending himself into higher influence by the authority of his name. No doubt he undertook this and the other case without reference to the truth or honesty of the cause, and when he did so, used all his energy for the bad as he did for the good cause. There seems to be special accusation made against him on this head, as though the very fact that he undertook his work without pay threw upon him the additional obligation of undertaking no cause that was not in itself upright. With us, the advocate does this notoriously for his fee. Cicero did it as notoriously in furtherance of some political object of the moment, or in maintenance of a friendship which was politically important. I say nothing against the modern practice. This would not be the place for such an argument. Nor do I say that, by rules of absolute right and wrong, Cicero was right. But he was as right, at any rate, as the modern barrister. And in reaching the high-minded conditions under which he worked, he had only the light of his own genius to guide him. When we compare the clothing of the savage race with our own, their beads and woad and straw and fibres with our own petticoats and pantaloons, we acknowledge the progress of civilization and the growth of machinery, 
It is not a wonderful thing to us that an African prince should not be as perfectly dressed as a young man in Piccadilly. But when we make a comparison of morals between our own time and a period before Christ, we seem to forget that more should be expected from us than from those who lived two thousand years ago. There are some of those pleadings, speeches made by Cicero on behalf of or against an accused party, from which we may learn more of Roman life than from any other source left to us. Much we may gather from Terence, much from Horace, something from Juvenal. There is hardly indeed a Latin author from which an attentive reader may not pick up some detail of Roman customs. Cicero's letters are themselves very prolific. But the pretty things of the poets are not quite facts, nor are the bitter things of the satirist. And, though a man's letters to his friend may be true, such letters as come to us will have been the products of the greater minds, and will have come from a small and special class. I fear that the Newgate calendar of the day would tell us more of the ways of living then prevailing than the letters of Lady Mary W. Montague or of Horace Walpole. From the orations against Verres, we learn how the people of a province lived under the tyranny inflicted upon them. And from those spoken in defence of Sextus Amerinus and Aulus Cluentius, we gather something of the horrors of Roman life, not in Rome, indeed, but within the limits of Roman citizenship. It is, however, as a man of letters that Cicero will be held in the highest esteem. It has been his good fortune to have a great part of what he wrote preserved for future ages. His works have not perished, as have those of his contemporaries, Varro and Hortensius. But this has been due to two causes which were independent of fortune. He himself believed in their value and took measures for their protection, and those who lived in his own time and in the immediately succeeding ages entertained the same belief and took the same care. Livy said that to write Latin well, the writer should write it like Cicero, and Quintilian, the first of Latin critics, repeated to us what Livy had asserted. There is a sweetness of language about Cicero which runs into the very sound, so that passages read aright would by their very cadences charm the ear of listeners ignorant of the language. Eulogy never was so happy as his. Eulogy, however, is tasteless in comparison with invective. Cicero's abuse is awful. Let the reader curious in such matters turn to the diatribes against Vatinius, one of Caesar's creatures, and to that against the unfortunate proconsul Piso, or to his attacks on Gabinius, who was consul together with Piso in the year of Cicero's banishment. There are wonderful morsels in the Philippics dealing with Antony's private character, but the words which he uses against Gabinius and Piso beat all that I know elsewhere in the science of invective. Junius could not approach him, and even Macaulay, though he has in certain passages been very bitter, has not allowed himself the latitude which Roman taste and Roman manners permitted to Cicero. It may, however, be said that the need of biographical memoirs as to a man of letters is by no means in proportion to the excellence of the work that he has achieved. Alexander is known but little to us, because we know so little of the details of his life. Caesar is much to us, because we have in truth been made acquainted with him. But Shakespeare, of whose absolute doings we know almost nothing, would not be nearer or dearer had he even had a Boswell to paint his daily portrait. The man of letters is in truth ever writing his own biography. What there is in his mind is being declared to the world at large by himself, and if he can so write that the world at large shall care to read what is written, no other memoir will perhaps be necessary. 
For myself, I have never regretted those details of Shakespeare's life which a Boswell of the time might have given us. But Cicero's personality as a man of letters seems especially to require elucidation. His letters lose their chief charm if the character of the man be not known, and the incidents of his life. His essays on rhetoric, the written lessons which he has left on the art of oratory, are a running commentary on his own career as an orator. Most of his speeches require for their understanding a knowledge of the circumstances of his life. The treatises which we know as his philosophy, works which have been most wrongly represented by being grouped under that name, can only be read with advantage by the light of his own experience. There are two separate classes of his so-called philosophy, in describing which the word philosophy, if it be used at all, must be made to bear two different senses. He handles in one set of treatises, not, I think, with his happiest efforts, the teaching of the old Greek schools. Such are his Tusculan disquisitions, the academics, and the de finibus. From reading these, without reference to the idiosyncrasies of the writer, the student would be led to believe that Cicero himself was a philosopher after that sort. But he was in truth the last of men to lend his ears to those budge doctors of the Stoic fur. Cicero was a man thoroughly human in all his strength and all his weakness. To sit apart from the world and be happy amid scorn, poverty and obscurity, with a mess of cabbage and a crust, absolutely contented with abstract virtue, has probably been given to no man, but of none has it been less within the reach than of Cicero. To him, ginger was always hot in the mouth, whether it was the spice of politics, or of social delight, or of intellectual enterprise. When, in his deep sorrow at the death of his daughter, when, for a time, the Republic was dead to him, and public and private life were equally black, he craved employment. Then he took down his Greek manuscripts, and amused himself as best he might by writing this way or that. It was a matter on which his intellect could work, and his energies be employed, though the theory of his life was in no way concerned in it. Such was one class of his philosophy. The other consisted of a code of morals which he created for himself by his own convictions, formed on the world around him, and which displayed itself in essays such as those De Officiis on the duties of life, De Senectute, De Amicitia, on old age and friendship, and the like, which were not only intended for use, but are of use to any man or woman who will study them up to this day. There are others, treatises on law and on government and religion, which have all been lumped together for the misguidance of schoolboys, under the name of Cicero's philosophy. But they, be they of one class or the other, require an understanding of the man's character before they can be enjoyed. For these reasons, I think that there are incidents in the life, the character and the works of Cicero, which ought to make his biography interesting. His story is fraught with energy, with success, with pathos, and with tragedy. And then it is the story of a man, human as men are now. No child of Rome ever better loved his country, but no child of Rome was ever so little like a Roman. Arms and battles were to him abominable, as they are to us, but arms and battles were the delight of Romans. He was ridiculed in his own time, and has been ridiculed ever since, for the alliterating twang of the line in which he declared his feeling, Cedant arma togai, concedat laurea linguae. But the thing said was thoroughly good, 
and the better because the opinion was addressed to men among whom the glory of arms was still in the ascendant over the achievements of intellectual enterprise. The greatest men have been those who have stepped out from the mass and gone beyond their time, seeing things with eyesight almost divine which have hitherto been hidden from the crowd. Such was Columbus when he made his way across the western ocean, such were Galileo and Bacon, such was Pythagoras, if the ideas we have of him be at all true, such also was Cicero. It is not given to the age in which such men live to know them. Could their age even recognise them, they would not overstep their age as they do. Looking back at him now, we can see how like a Christian was the man, so like that, in essentials, we can hardly see the difference. He could love another as himself, as nearly as a man may do, and he taught such love as a doctrine. He believed in the existence of one supreme God. He believed that man would rise again and live forever in some heaven. I am conscious that I cannot much promote this view of Cicero's character by quoting isolated passages from his works, words which, taken alone, may be interpreted in one sense or another, and which should be read each with its context before their due meaning can be understood. But I may perhaps succeed in explaining to a reader what it is that I hope to do in the following pages, and why it is that I undertake a work which must be laborious, and for which many will think that there is no remaining need. I would not have it thought that, because I have so spoken of Cicero's aspirations and convictions, I intend to put him forth as a faultless personage in history. He was much too human to be perfect. Those who love the cold attitude of indifference may sing of Cato as perfect. Cicero was ambitious, and often unscrupulous in his ambition. He was a loving husband and a loving father, but at the end of his life he could quarrel with his old wife irrecoverably, and could idolise his daughter while he ruined his son by indulgence. He was very great while he spoke of his country, which he did so often, but he was almost as little when he spoke of himself, which he did as often. In money matters he was honest, for the times in which he lived wonderfully honest, but in words he was not always equally trustworthy. He could flatter where he did not love. I admit that it was so, though I will not admit without a protest that the word insincere should be applied to him as describing his character generally. He was so much more sincere than others that the protest is needed. If a man stand but five feet eleven inches in his shoes, shall he be called a pygmy? And yet to declare that he measures full six feet would be untrue. Cicero was a busybody. Were there anything to do, he wished to do it, let it be what it might. Cadant arma togai. If anything was written on his heart, it was that. Yet he loved the idea of leading an army and panted for a military triumph. Letters and literary life were dear to him, and yet he liked to think that he could live on equal terms with the young bloods of Rome, such as Celius. As far as I can judge, he cared nothing for luxurious eating and drinking, and yet he wished to be reckoned among the gourmands and gourmets of his times. He was so little like the budge-doctors of the Stoic fur, of whom it was his delight to write when he had nothing else to do, that he could not bear any touch of adversity with equanimity. The Stoic requires to be hardened against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It is his profession to be indifferent to the whips and scorns of time. No man was less hardened or more subject to suffering from scorns and whips. 
There may be those who think proneness to such suffering is unmanly, or that the sufferer should at any rate hide his agony. Cicero did not. Whether of his glory or of his shame, whether of his joy or of his sorrow, whether of his love or of his hatred, whether of his hopes or of his despair, he spoke openly, as he did of all things. It has not been the way of heroes as we read of them, but it is the way with men as we live with them. What a man he would have been for London life! How he would have enjoyed his club picking up the news of the day from all lips, while he seemed to give it to all ears! How popular he would have been at the Carlton, and how men would have listened to him while every great or little crisis was discussed! How supreme he would have sat on the treasury bench! Or how unanswerable, how fatal, how joyous when attacking the government from the opposite seats! How crowded would have been his rack with invitations to dinner! How delighted would have been the middle-aged countesses of the time to hold with him mild intellectual flirtations, and the girls of the period how proud to get his autograph, how much prouder to have touched the lips of the great orator with theirs. How the pages of the magazines would have run over with little essays from his pen. Have you seen our Cicero's paper on agriculture? That lucky fellow, Editor Blank, got him to do it last month. Of course you've read Cicero's article on the soul. The bishops don't know which way to turn. So the political article in the quarterly is Cicero's. Of course, you know that the art criticism in the Times this year is Tully's doing. But that would probably be a bounce. And then what letters he would write. With the penny post instead of travelling messengers at his command, and pen instead of wax some sticks, or perhaps with an instrument writer and a private secretary, he would have answered all questions and solved all difficulties. He would have so abounded with intellectual fertility that men would not have known whether most to admire his powers of expression or to deprecate his want of reticence. There will necessarily be much to be said of Cicero's writings in the following pages, as it is my object to delineate the literary man as well as the politician. In doing this there arises a difficulty as to the sequence in which his work should be taken. It will hardly suit the purpose in view to speak of them all, either chronologically or separately as to their subjects. The speeches and the letters clearly require the former treatment, as applying each to the very moment of time at which they were either spoken or written. His treatises, whether on rhetoric or on the Greek philosophy or on government or on morals, can best be taken apart as belonging in a very small degree, if at all, to the period in which they were written. I will therefore endeavour to introduce the orations and letters as the periods may suit, and to treat of his essays afterwards by themselves. A few words, I must say, as to the Roman names I have used in my narrative. There is a difficulty in this respect, because the practice of my boyhood has partially changed itself. Pompey used to be Pompey without a blush. Now, with an erudite English writer, he is generally Pompeius. The denizens of Africa, the nigger world, have had, I think, something to do with this. But with no erudite English writer is Terence Terentius, or Virgil Virgilius, or Horace Horatius. Were I to speak of Livius, the erudite English listener would think that I alluded to an old author long prior to our dear historian. And though we now talk of Sulla instead of Sylla, we hardly venture on Antonius instead of Antony. Considering all this, I have thought it better to cling to the sounds which have ever been familiar to myself, and, as I talk of Virgil and of Horace and Ovid freely and without fear, so shall I speak also of Pompey and of Antony and of Catiline. In regard to Sulla, 
the change has been so complete that I must allow the old name to have re-established itself altogether. It has been customary to notify the division of years in the period of which I am about to write by dating from two different eras, counting down from the building of Rome, AUC, or Anno Urbis Conditae, and back from the birth of Christ, which we English mark by the letters BC before Christ. In dealing with Cicero, writers, both French and English, have not uncommonly added a third mode of dating, assigning his doings or sayings to the year of his age. There is again a fourth mode, common among the Romans, of indicating the special years by naming the consuls, or one of them. O nata mecum consule manlio, Horace says, when addressing his cask of wine. That was indeed the official mode of indicating a date, and may probably be taken as showing how strong the impression in the Roman mind was of the succession of their consuls. In the following pages I will use generally the date B.C., which, though perhaps less simple than the A.U.C., gives to the mind of the modern reader a clearer idea of the juxtaposition of events. The reader will surely know that Christ was born in the reign of Augustus, and crucified in that of Tiberius, but he will not, perhaps, know, without the trouble of some calculation, how far removed from the period of Christ was the year 648 A.U.C., in which Cicero was born. To this I will add on the margin the year of Cicero's life. He was nearly sixty-four when he died. I shall therefore call that year his sixty-third year. End of chapter 1